appreciate all of the musicians who give of their Saturday mornings to rehearse so that they can come and accompany our congregational singing and even provided that offertory for us. Thank you. I know that it's a sacrifice to give up Saturdays. They're probably the most precious day we have, right? Catch up on all of those honeydews. You know, maybe they'd rather be here, Ron, than uh, <laughs> mowing the lawn. Maybe, uh, maybe we sh- they should be thanking us, right? Or letting them come here. But no, we do appreciate it. It's a sacrifice. It's a good one. We uh, bought our home and moved here from Dallas almost 15 years ago now. We were really excited. We had uh, prayed before we came. We'd made a big, long list of everything that we'd like in a home and uh, had taken that before the Lord and prayed about that, you know, because we were moving here to California where real estate is, you know, many more times more expensive than it ought to be. And, and we're coming from Dallas and trying to figure out how we we're going to afford a home and so forth. But uh, one of the surprise treats that we uh, received that wasn't on our prayer list is when we, we moved into the home, there was a tangerine tree in the yard. And so we were very excited about this because, um, you know, in Dallas, you don't have citrus and, and having a tangerine tree and it was just loaded with fruit. It looked like just an idyllic kind of compliment or addition to our, to our home. And then we, um, we tasted the fruit on that wretched tree and, <laughs> and it was uh, sour and small and stunted and, and worthless. And so people said, well, you got to give it more water. So, you know, I watered the daylights out of that thing, and that tree was still produced small, stunted, sour, worthless fruit. Well, then, you know, it was, of course, fertilizer. I need more fertilizer. We did the fertilizer drill, and then it was too much. You know, we talked to different people. Oh, that's way too much water. You need less water. So, you know, less water, more water, this fertilizer, that fertilizer. Someone even from the church came out and tried to graft a new uh, limb onto that, onto the trunk of the tree to produce the great tangerines that they had in their yard and still nothing. So eventually some, uh, some friends from a Bible study we were in showed up at my house one Saturday morning, knocked on the door and, and uh, said, we're taking out your wretched tree. And they, they chopped it down, dug out the stump, and that was the end of it. You know, a, a fruit tree that doesn't produce fruit is a contradiction. It is a contradiction. In the natural world, God intends for fruit trees to produce good fruit. And that which God intends in the natural realm, He intends in the spiritual realm as as well. And so, it's a contradiction in terms for a follower of Jesus Christ, one who professes to follow Christ, to fail to produce fruit just as much as it is a contradiction for that wretched tangerine tree in my yard to masquerade as a real tangerine tree. You know, there are possessors of eternal life and there are professors of eternal life. And the difference is absolutely huge. Absolutely huge. Let me uh, just remind you from a few passages drawn from Matthew's Gospel about the necessity to produce fruit in our lives. In Matthew 3, verses 8 through 10... John the Baptist is preaching. He's talking about fruit, and he says, Fruit is what validates someone's repentance. 
How do you know someone has truly repented? You look for fruit of repentance, he says. Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Or over in Matthew chapter 7, there fruit is what is used to distinguish a true teacher of God from a false teacher, from a pretender, from a wolf in sheep's clothing. Beginning in verse 17, Jesus says, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is not what is professed with the mouth. It is what is worked out. Matthew 13. There in the parable of the soils, Jesus says that it is fruit that substantiates the profession of faith. You remember there, there were the different kinds of soils and, and they all produced, well, except for the, the hard pack in which the seed was taken, but the, the rest produced some sort of stunted growth. But they didn't persevere, they didn't hang on, they didn't produce fruit. It is only the 30, 60, 100 fold Jesus says, the one on whom seed was sown, that's the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Always. It's, a, it's an equation. There's an equal sign. A follower of Jesus Christ equals fruit bearer. When we, uh, we were on vacation a few years ago, we had driven to Arizona and enjoyed some time there, and we were coming back into the state of California, and they stopped our vehicle. And they stopped it to inspect for fruit, because California has some notion that if you bring in alien fruit, you will destroy the whole state of California. I don't know what it is, but you cannot bring fruit back into California. So they stopped the car, and you know, you, you know the drill. They ask you all these goofy questions and so forth. Fruit inspectors at the borders of the state of California. Well, this morning, under the penetrating searchlight of the Word of God, we are going to be examined for fruit together. I've entitled this message, Fruit Inspectors. Open your Bibles to uh, John 15. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 8. In this section here of the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus is going to disclose for us what it means to abide in Him. He's going to use the word repeatedly. He's going to tell us what it means to abide in Him. And He's also going to tell us what is the fearful consequences that come upon those that do not abide in Him. So that we will take some spiritual inventory this morning. So we will... Inspect fruit, not each other's, 
but our own. The Word of God will be used of the Spirit of God to penetrate into our hearts and inspect ourselves for the issue of fruit. Now, just as a matter of background and context to sort of set this thing up, well, let me read it first, and I guess then we'll do that. We'll begin at verse 1, 15, chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, if you, um, I don't think you can help but notice if you read through the Gospel of John and then into John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, that you know that this uh, disciple of love is also a, a very black and white kind of person. He is a very clear cut, clean thinker. He doesn't have a lot of room in his, in his thinking for shades of gray. It's, it's black or it's white. It's, you're in, you're out. And throughout his writings, he draws those kind of exacting contrasts. And that's what's going on here in chapter 15, the section we're going to be looking at together this morning. But, but just to kind of review that and get it into your mind, I, I just penciled down a few things drawn from the earlier chapters of John's Gospel to help you to remember, oh yeah, that is the way John communicates. For example, and don't turn there, just listen. It'll take too long for us to look them all up. But for example, in chapter 3, verse 18, he contrasts he who believes, that's the saved one, and he that does not believe, that is the unsaved one. So it's he who believes, he who doesn't. Further on, verses 20, 21, he who practices the truth and he that does evil. So you have practices and you got evildoers. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son is saved. He that does not obey the Son is not saved. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall have everlasting life, right? He who drinks of this other water will thirst again. So it's two kinds of waters, two kinds of people. Chapter 5, verse 29. They that have done good is contrasted with they that have done evil. Chapter 6, verses 53 to 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. And then he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Chapter 8, verse 31, if you abide in my word, then you are true disciples. There is an implied contrast there, and that is if you do not abide, you are not. Chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me. There's an implied contrast there, and that is that those who do not hear my voice and do not follow me are not my sheep. Chapter 12, verse 25, He who hates his life keeps it. He who loves his life loses it. Chapter 13, verses 10 and 11, You are clean, but not all of you. Referring to Judas. 
And then here in chapter 15, fruitful and barren. It's these kinds of sharp contrasts that that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is drawn to, to lay out for us, so that we can kind of cut through the fog and really do some serious spiritual inventory. It's simple here before us. Those that are abiding in Christ are fruitful. Those that are not abiding in Christ are barren. That's what the text says. And the fruitful ones produce fruit, more fruit, much fruit. The barren ones are chopped off, dried up, gathered, thrown in a fire, and burned. There's just no room in John's thinking for the in-between categories. This brings a warning to us, really. So we sit here, we go through this text together, this, this is a serious warning. This is a serious warning to look at our own lives vis-a-vis this text and say, where are we? Are we fruitful, much fruit, you know, more fruit, much fruit, or are we barren? You're either producing fruit or you're not. I mean, Jeremiah 17 says the heart is what? Deceitful and desperately wicked, right? Who can know it? We need to have these kinds of of come-to-Jesus times where we really look seriously at our own lives and and let the text look at us, the Spirit of God, and really see who we are and where we are. So let's look first at uh, those that abide. Now, the background I told you before for this whole section on the fruit and the vine is Israel. A few weeks ago, we took a long time to lay all that out for you. But that's always running in the background here. Israel was to be the vine of God. It was to produce fruit. That was the purpose for which God drew together this nation and birthed them from the womb of Egypt. It was to produce fruit. And if Israel was never able to fulfill its purpose. And although the prophets came and warned over and over and over again about fruit-bearing, Israel never could manage to bear any fruit, and finally she was cut off. Prophet Ezekiel in chapter 15, just commenting on the fruitlessness of the vine Israel, made the observation that a vine that doesn't bear fruit is so worthless, it's not even good for wood. It doesn't make good firewood. You can't carve anything out of it. You can't make a utensil out of it. It is worthless. A vine is to produce fruit. If it doesn't produce fruit, it has no other value. There's no secondary purpose for a dead grapevine. Now, take a look at verse 4 as Jesus begins to describe and define those who abide. He says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, what does this word abide mean? It, the, the word is meno in the Greek, and it has a, it has a wide range of meanings, but, but they all kind of coalesce around the idea of, of perseverance or dwelling together or remaining in union. That kind of a notion. Translated Abide. So it's talking about a relationship. It's a relational kind of word. 
Jesus is here giving a command. There is an imperative here, verse 4, abide in me. That is an imperative. That is a command. And, and what he's saying is you are to remain in continual relationship with me, connected to me. And there's a promise built into it as well. There's kind of an ellipsis here in the first part of verse 4. Ellipsis just means that there's a few words missing, but they're, they're implied in the text. And what he's saying is an imperative to you, command, you abide in me and a promise with it, and I will abide with you. If you abide with me, I will be in continual relationship with you. I will remain in relationship with you via the Spirit of God. I mean, you look over in chapter 14, verse 16, just remembering this is all one big upper room discourse. This is a, just a whole series of sermons connected together. Jesus says he's going away there in chapter 14. He says in verse 16, he'll ask the Father and he will send another of like kind helper that he may be with you forever. So Jesus is saying, you abide in me, command, promise, I will continue to remain with you and I will do so in the person of the Comforter whom I will send, that is the Holy Spirit of God. So we will have a relationship together. Like a, like a grapevine in which the organic life of the vine is, is pulsating through the branches and forming the grapes. We don't have a grapevine at our home, but we're blessed because our neighbor does, and it hangs over the fence. I guess that's the rule of California, right? Anything that hangs over your fence is yours. Well, our neighbor's gracious. He said you can have whatever you want. But you can go out there at different times of the year and you can see the vine. It's got leaves and it, it's a, it looks really alive. And then the teensy little grapes form and then they get bigger and bigger, right? And then they, they're just really lush and then they get ripe. How does all that happen? It comes because of the life of the vine pulsating through. Because they're connected together. If I were to go and to sever one of those little green you know, vines and let it sit there. It would look alive for a day or two, but then eventually it would just be dried up. So it's that natural connection of the, of the vine with the root that produces this fruit. That's in the natural realm, and in the spiritual realm, it's the same way. Look again at verse 4. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. When we abide in Jesus Christ, then the life of Christ flows or pulsates through us. And the fruit that he commands is produced. It's not just something we kind of <clears throat> tough it out. It is the life of God flowing through us because we remain connected in relationship to the source of spiritual life, Jesus Christ himself. Now, the question that comes, at least to my mind, is how, at least according to John, how does somebody abide in Christ? I mean, if that is the key to it, is to abide in Christ, how does, it go, how does that happen? How do we go about abiding in Christ? Again, look at the beginning of verse 4. This is a command. Commands are meant to be obeyed. So this is something that we must obey. So how do we obey it? Well, let's do it this way. Turn with me over to First uh, John. And let's look at a couple of passages together where, where John addresses the issue of abiding. First John 2. First John 2, we'll look at verses 23-24. 
The first way to fulfill this command to abide in Jesus Christ is to remain faithful to the apostolic message. Be faithful to the apostolic message. I wish we had time to sort of develop this whole thought, but but Jesus Christ walked with these men for three years. He lived with them. He ministered to them and, and through them. He discipled them. And then when he left, he entrusted to them the message, and he said, go out into all the world and do what? Make disciples, right? Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. So to become a disciple of Jesus Christ is to to join yourself to the body of apostolic truth. Entrusted to this first relatively narrow group of men... And then as the church began to grow and progress, the group became wider. But you, you can't do Christianity on your own. Christianity is only done when you join with the group, and the group just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's the idea, is that we all join to the apostolic message. Now, of course, for us, the apostolic message is not given verbally anymore. The apostolic message is given and scripturated. So the way to abide in Christ, according to John here, 1 John chapter 2, verses 23-24, is to remain faithful to the apostolic message. Here it is. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. How do we abide in Christ? We remain faithful to the apostolic message. John goes on to help us define this in chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. We abide in Jesus Christ by believing and living obediently to the gospel message. Verse 23, chapter 3, this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. How do we abide in Jesus Christ? We live obediently to the gospel. It is a real practical outworking. This is not a sort of a mystical, ethereal kind of thing. This is intensely practical. It is to believe and it is to obey. That's how we abide in Jesus Christ. One more from John, chapter 4, verse 15. We abide by confessing that Jesus is God in human flesh. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That expression, Son of God, that's a a Hebrew expression. It means one with God. You abide in Christ by believing that Jesus Christ is the God-man. Not some deified human, not some superior angel, not some other contraption of human ingenuity, but you believe that God, second person of the Godhead, came, the eternal Son, and took to himself human flesh, and that he is fully God. That's how you abide. To fail to believe is to fail to abide. 
So abiding is the equivalent of believing. Back to uh, John 15 there. How do we abide in Jesus Christ? Short answer, by believing. By believing. It is a relationship that is initiated by faith. It is a relationship that is maintained by faith. In dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God. Remember, the word abide means is a relationship kind of word. And the relationship is a faith-based relationship, believing and living in obedience to the revealed will of God through the apostolic message. That's how we abide. You know, um, the Puritans used to uh, encourage the preaching of the gospel to the converted. Or at least the people who professed to be converted. The gospel message is not just for those out there. It's for us in here. It's got all kinds of benefits. But one of which is the fact that in a crowd, any kind of crowd that you get together, there is always the distinct possibility that not everyone truly believes. That there are those in our midst, even here this morning who profess allegiance to Jesus Christ, yet their heart has deceived them, and they are not truly converted. They are only outwardly attached. And so we preach this kind of a message because this is the way the Spirit of God peels open those hard hearts and reveals the need for a true faith commitment to Christ. You know, salvation is always by grace through faith. Is that right? God will preserve and keep his own. Do we believe that? Absolutely. But one of the means and mechanisms by which God preserves and keeps his own is by warning them against defection. And so what we have here is is the warning against defection. Those that abide and those that don't. Let Let me try to illustrate it for you this way. When my children were young and... We would go to the shopping mall or something, and I would say to them, now hold on to Daddy's hand while we cross the street. Okay? Hold on to my hand. Don't let go. We're going to cross this busy street. Now, did I expect them to hold on to my hand? Yes, I did. But was their safety dependent upon their ability to hold firmly to my hand? Their safety was dependent upon my ability as the father to hold their hand firmly, not their ability to hold mine. Yet I always told them, hold tight to me. Well, God acts in a similar way. Our perseverance, our continuance in the Christian faith is dependent upon God's grip on us, not our grip on God. Yet God, numerous places in the scripture instructs us, hang on. Hold on. And that's what's going on here. This is a hold on kind of text. Fruit. You abide in Jesus Christ, you will produce fruit. That's what the text says. Again, at verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It is in union with Jesus Christ that fruit comes. Apart from Christ, no fruit, barrenness. That's all there is. Apart from a faith relationship with Jesus Christ, there will be no fruit. None. Twice. Verse 4. The end of verse 4. So neither can you, lest you abide in me. The end of verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He says it twice. Don't miss this. Unless you are in an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, there will be no spiritual fruit produced. Nothing acceptable to God. It all comes out of that saving relationship. See, it's not only drunkards and prostitutes and thieves and murderers that will suffer the judgment of God. It is respectable people, pillars of society, those that are incredibly moral and, and generous, upstanding folks who don't abide in Jesus Christ. They too will suffer the the judgment. It's an all or nothing proposition here. You abide and produce fruit, evidencing your abiding, or you don't, and judgment comes. Now, there are times in the life of believers where we act like we don't abide. Isn't that true? There are times when, through sin, that we live like we don't believe. We live as practical atheists. And it is in those times, it's, it's not that our relationship with Christ has been severed, but it's that we're living as if we have no relationship, and in those cases we produce no fruit in our lives. The cure for that is repentance. We talked a lot here in the last few weeks about pruning. The means by which God brings about the fruit bearing is to prune away those things in our lives that interfere. Fruit is produced by the life of Christ pulsating through us. Look what else he has to say about those that abide. Look down to verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. What an amazing promise. Ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you if you were abiding in Jesus Christ. This is, an, this is uh, not a promise, by the way, with all kinds of caveats and provisos. If you abide in Jesus Christ... Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. That is an amazing promise. Amazing promise. Now go back again. Well, we, we said earlier, what does it mean to abide in Jesus Christ? It is to believe, and it is to obey, right? It is to follow. It is to attach yourself firmly to the apostolic message. And as you do that, what happens is Jesus' words become such a part of the fabric of your life that they, they change your affections. 
the things that you long for, the, the things that you desire most, your mind becomes so saturated with the Word of God, the apostolic message that you begin to have the mind of Christ. And, that, and, at the, and as you begin to have the mind of Christ, you begin to pray that way. And when you begin to pray that way, guess what? Your prayers are answered. Your prayers are answered. I mean, the context of effective prayer is the, is the prayer of one saturated with Jesus Christ. Chapter 14, verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So, I mean, we, we delve. You have to get the tape to go into that. It's not just adding Jesus' name on the end of your prayer like an open sesame and you get whatever you want. It has to do with being so identified with Jesus Christ that you begin to pray the very prayers that He would pray. God always answers the Son's prayers. It's that kind of relationship that locks us into the mind of God. You know, beloved, we're reading the Scriptures through in a year together, right? Many of us. I mean, there's all kinds of benefits that come to you from doing that. Not the least of which is that you improve your level of biblical literacy. But way beyond that is that as you continually, year in and year out, pour through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, you begin to develop the mind of Christ. You begin to see reality as it really is, not as the world would have you see it, but as it is because it's the way God made it. You begin to see it through His eyes. The psalmist says, in your light we see light, Psalm 36, 9. We begin to see things really as they are. And as we begin to see the world as it really is, through God's eyes, we begin to pray the way God would have us pray, and the prayers are answered. The key to, to effective prayer is a saturation with the Word of God. Our prayers then become not my will, but thy will be done. Easily said, difficult do but it's a it's an outworking of a true abiding in Jesus Christ beyond that look at verse 8 by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples in Romans 8 chapter 29 Paul says that we have been predestined before the foundation of the world for one purpose and that is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. To become like Christ. That is the purpose for which God has redeemed us. And He has ordained it as a reality that is true and will be true of all believers. So the more our lives here and now begin to reflect the, the spiritual fruit that Jesus Christ modeled before us, the more we are becoming conformed to His image, the, the more the world sees the reality of who we are and the, and the more we fulfill the purpose for which God has created us. And it's all an outworking of abiding. Living in that vital relationship with God through Christ. God is glorified in that. And again, look at the end of verse 8. It is proof positive. It is the visible evidence of a true discipleship relationship. 
those that abide. What about those that don't? What about those that don't? Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. But your eyes go back up to the end of verse, or beginning of verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away or cuts off. I mean, the contrast here is so stark. Producing fruit, being pruned and producing fruit, more fruit, much fruit, or chopped off, cast aside, dried out, gathered up, and burned. That is a frightening picture of judgment. Jesus, Matthew chapter 13, verse 41 and 42, talking about his kingdom. He says, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fire is a judgment. Biblically, fire is the judgment. And those who are barren, the the picture could not be more clear. Those that are barren are fit to be burned. As Ezekiel said, the vine has no purpose. You can't carve it into anything useful. You can't even heat your home with it. They're fit to be burned. Like corpses at the end of a great battle, thrown into a ditch covered with kerosene and incinerated. That's the picture. It's a stark picture. So who are these fruitless branches? Who are these that are fit only to be burned? Well, generally, there are four explanations that have historically been offered as to who these are. I'll just, I want to work through them with you very quickly. Arrive at what I believe is the proper interpretation. There are some that say the fruitless branches here are are those Christians who do not persevere in the faith and therefore they are ultimately lost. It is Christians who who fail to persevere and they're ultimately lost. Now this this view is very problematic, and not the least of which is it runs contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. In fact, John's own gospel in chapter 10 Verses 28 and 29, where Jesus said, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So it's just it's an inadequate explanation that these are fruitless Christians who fail to persevere in their faith, and so they are chopped off and burned. Another explanation that has been offered is that these are fruitless Christians who God disciplines by bringing premature death and then burning their their worthless human efforts at the judgment seat of Christ, at the Bema seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3. But this this view doesn't, doesn't work either. It doesn't hold up. I mean, first, it says here in verse 2, right, the believers are removed from the vine. 
Even, even disobedient Christians, their physical death. They, you know, Paul does, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about some believers who do arrive at a premature physical death because of their disobedience, but that doesn't sever them from the vine. They're not cut off from Christ because of that. Beyond that, it's, it's their works that are burned up there at the judgment seat of Christ. And here it talks about the very branch itself being burned. Beyond that, Jesus says, every branch, verse 2, and not every disobedient Christian suffers a premature death, do they? So that view doesn't work either. There's a third. The third is that these are, these are carnal Christians. These are, these are carnal Christians, that is, Christians who are living carnally. And that the Father, and there's a different interpretation here back in verse 2 where it says that he, he takes away, the, the verb is iro, and it, it can mean lift up. And so that's the interpretation they take, is that he, he lifts up these fruitless branches. He raises them up off of the ground, is the idea. And, and he brings them to fruitfulness through a deeper life or a higher life. This, uh, this kind of an understanding is very closely associated with what's known as Keswick theology. Keswick, it's K-E-S-W-I-C-K. Keswick theology, you ought to be familiar with this. Keswick theology is an interdenominational movement that began in the, in the end of the uh, 19th century, 1875, over in Keswick, England. It's an interdenominational movement. It was begun out of the Moody Sankey revivalist meetings, evangelistic meetings. And, and basically, it's, it's a movement devoted to holiness, and missionary endeavor, very noble causes. And their understanding of this text, and by the way, there are a number of people, I'll give you a few names just so you understand, that big names associated with Keswick theology through the years. For example, Donald Gray Barnhouse was one, F.B. Meyer, Andrew Murray, John R.W. Stott today, Hudson Taylor, R.A. Torrey, Bill Bright, these are, these are just a few that are, that are affiliated with Keswick theology. And I said it's an interdenominational movement. It moves across denominational lines. And their goals are worthy. Greater level of Christian holiness, greater level of missionary involvement. These are noble and worthy goals. But the fundamental flaw in their theology begins here in John 15 with a misunderstanding of the text. They understand the... the What's going on here is that the abiding is a deeper life relationship with Jesus Christ. That the vines that are barren are really true Christians and that they just need to be lifted up and brought into a greater or fruitful relationship with Christ. So they talk about carnal Christians. They posit spiritual Christians and carnal Christians and unbelievers. So three kinds of people in the world. And the way that they, that they would tell you that you're, that you're lifted up is to abandon yourself to God. So sort of the buzzwords would be abandon and abide. Maybe you've heard it this way. Let go and let God. Have you ever heard that? Let go and let God. Give yourself to Him fully. Abandon yourself to Him. And He will lift you up and, and cause you to become a fruitful vine. Now, that's a misunderstanding here of John 15. That's not what the abiding is talking about in context here. I mean, there's a lot of problems with the view, and I'm not going to critique it. I don't even have time. 
But just here in the context of John 15, note the people of verse 2 are the same people of verse 6. And the people of verse 6 go into judgment. The unfruitful branches go into judgment. There's no getting around that. This notion of carnal Christians, by the way, is, uh, is I think, a serious mistake that has caused some damage to the church. I don't have time to go into that, but it's a, it's a misunderstanding of Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where he's talking to the Corinthian church and saying that you are living carnally. Different context. Fourth, in context here, what I believe is the correct view of who are these barren Christians, or, or excuse me, barren branches, they are professing Christians. Professing Christians. Those that have professed allegiance to Jesus Christ, but it has been a superficial allegiance and they have been severed from the vine. They are finally severed. I think the classic illustration of that occurs in chapter 13 in the same upper room discourse, right? All of you are clean, well, all except one. Who? Judas, who had a superficial attachment to Jesus Christ, involved in all kinds of ministry. He was among those that went out two by two and performed amazing works. But his heart was never with Christ. It is those who profess allegiance to Jesus Christ who have never really become converted. These are the barren branches. Now, some people will have a problem with that and they'll say, the, they'll look in verse 2 where it talks about the expression, in me, do you see that? Every branch, in me, and they'll say that, you know, how can you be in Christ and be cut off? Well, I'll just put it this way. First off, Jesus doesn't say in Christ. That's Paul's terminology. Paul is speaking to the church on the other side of Pentecost, where he's talking about the spiritual union of the believer with Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is a different time and place. It's one of the dangers, by the way, of cross-referencing. If you're going to cross-reference through the Bible, you better be sure you're in the right context teaching the same thing. Jesus is not talking about the in-Christ relationship that Paul develops throughout his epistles. I mean, in Romans, Paul says, not all those who are Israel are of Israel, right? He also says in 1 Corinthians that not everybody who was baptized into Moses truly believed. You could be in the covenant in an external sense and not really be in the covenants. And so there are those who have attached themselves. They're united to Jesus here in John 15 by profession only, not by possession of saving relationship. And Judas Iscariot is the prime illustration of that. Jesus is calling for an absolute abiding in him. He's talking about a, using this vine imagery. He's talking about a real, persevering, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's saying that those who abide produce fruit and persevere and show themselves to be disciples. And those who have only a superficial attachment, their lives are barren, and judgment awaits them, just like it awaited Judas. So 
So the questions we need to ask ourselves are, are we abiding in Christ? Are we abiding in Christ? And are we producing fruit? If we are, we will be. If our lives are fruitless, if our lives are fruitless, then we need to revisit the cross of Calvary. We need to be sure that we have truly attached ourselves to Christ. And if we have, then we need to put off that old man and his sinful lusts and begin to walk in the fullness of the Spirit who is ours. I can't urge you strongly enough to consider your life. Take a good, hard, serious look. Let the Spirit of God probe you. Beloved, the stakes are way too high. Way too high to come up short on this one. As we close into the service, there'll be some spiritual counselors over here by the cross. If anything we've said this morning has caused you to want to dialogue further, they'll be there available to you to open the Word of God and talk with you about what it means to follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning has been a, a sober morning. The passage we read from 2 Samuel 6 brought us face to face with your holiness. Jesus' words to his disciples, even though we know, Father, that they were true and persevered to the end, nonetheless, he gave them that message of self-examination and threw them to us. And so, Lord God, self-examination is what it's called for. Our Father, I pray that the searchlight of your holy word as the Spirit who inspired it causes it to probe deep into our hearts would reveal the inner places. That you would confirm to us our relationship with you or the absence thereof. And I pray that you would not leave us in complacency. Let us know for sure, Lord God, that we are yours and you are ours. We pray these things in the name and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood purchased our redemption. Amen.